make sure this is all right. Sorry about that. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. Those words are true because in Christ we do have eternal life. In Christ we have been promised an inheritance. In Christ we are counted righteous. In Christ we have been reconciled to God. And we hope in Him alone. So let's go to the Lord now in prayer and ask Him for His help as we look to the Bible. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we do come to You now. And we acknowledge our need for You. We pray that we would never forget that fact that we are needy people. That we are imperfect. That we are fallen. And that in our own strength we are incapable of doing anything good for ourselves spiritually. So Lord God, we pray that You would come now by the power of Your Holy Spirit. That You would fill me, the preacher of Your Word, with Your Spirit that I might be helpful to these dear people. We pray that You would use me, a fallen, imperfect man, as Your instrument this morning. And we pray for all of us that as we sit under Your Word, that You would do the supernatural heart and mind work that only You can do. We realize that naturally we don't like what Your Word says. Naturally we don't understand what Your Word says. But You are an utterly faithful God. And You give Your Spirit without measure to those whom You have called. God, we pray for Your help now. We pray that we would not only see what is true, but that we would rejoice over it. We pray that you would stir our hearts and our minds as we contemplate you and the love that you have for us. And we pray for that help in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, as Christians, and in particular as a local church, a group of people who have covenanted together to walk together, to lock arms together, to follow Jesus together, we are called to help one another live in a way that honors God. By God's grace, we have been adopted into God's family. We are now called sons and daughters of God through faith. We have been given through faith a new identity in Christ. That is who we are now. We are those who have been covered in His righteousness and we are in Him. And so, we should live accordingly. We should live differently than we once did. We should live in a way that honors the Lord. And we need to help one another do that. And I would say that most often, with rare exception, that helping one another live a God-honoring life looks something like this. First, we look to God's Word. We come away from God's Word saying, according to Scripture... This is how we should live. And then secondly, we quickly move on to the real talk moment. It's like, okay, let's be real. Let's be transparent here. We don't always live the way that we are supposed to live according to the book. We struggle. We battle indwelling sin. So we acknowledge that reality. But then next, thirdly, we would look again to God's Word together to see the motivation 
for godly living. We would look to God's word to see the ground of godly living. We would look to God's word to see the reasons for godly living. And just a hint, the answers to those questions, high level, the motivation, the ground, the reasons for godly living are going to be God and who he is and what he has done for us in Christ for the sake of God's glory. Those high level answers again are God and who he is, what he has done for us in Christ, all for the praise of his glory. Those are the motivations, the reasons, the ground of godly living. But then finally, this helping one another live God-honoring lives, we are called to encourage one another. We are called to stir one another up to love and good works. Our posture ought to be one of, hey, let's go. Let's go by God's spirit and by God's grace. Let's live together as unto the Lord. And so if you have your Bibles with you, I hope that you do open them up or turn them on to Psalm 33. You will find that relatively easily. I think if you can find your way to the book of Psalms, we are in the 33rd Psalm today. We have embarked on a 10 part series, at least for for my portion of this, a 10 part series in the Psalms that will conclude early next year. I'm preaching two Psalms out of each of the five books of the Psalter. So we're in the second of two sermons this morning from the first book of the Psalms, which is comprised by Psalms 1 through 41. Then Psalm 42 to 72 is book 2. Psalm 73 to 89, book 3. Psalm 90 to 106, book 4. And then Psalm 107 through 150, book 5. So that's kind of where we're headed. We've got eight more sermons after today in the Psalms, at least from me this fall. So now as you've made your way, you've had ample time to make your way to Psalm 33. Let's now look to God's word and I will read it aloud for us. Beginning in verse 1. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation and by its great might it cannot rescue 
Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope in His steadfast love, that He may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in Him because we trust in His holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Amen. Thanks be to God for His Word today and every day. So the way I want to begin the rest of our time together is simply to preach what I understand the major theme of Psalm 33 to be. This is how we're going to start. The major theme of Psalm 33, which I have phrased it this way. Praise the Lord because He's worthy. Praise the Lord because He's worthy. Put your eyes on the first three verses of Psalm 33. I want us to look at those again. These first three verses, essentially, friends, are a call to worship. I'm going to read them one more time. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to Him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. That second piece of verse 1, praise befits the upright. It's pretty cool. Praise befits the saints, you could say. So it is right, it is appropriate. We ought to praise the Lord. All those who have been called according to His name. We should shout for joy. We should praise Him continually. We should give thanks to Him. Here, we're told to do that with the lyre, an instrument. We should make melody to Him. Here again with an instrument, the harp of ten strings. We should sing to Him. And we should play skillfully for Him again on an instrument. This is the first time, by the way, just brief aside, in the Psalter, this is the first time that instruments are mentioned. It is as though, in thinking about praising God and the fact that praise befits the saints, it is as though we need to make every beautiful sound we can in order to praise the Lord adequately. So it's good, it's sad that many have argued against this, it's good to make music and melody to God with instruments. It's a good thing to do. It honors Him and it is suitable for praising the Lord in addition to singing with your voice. So in summary, friends, we should live lives as the saints of God. We should live lives characterized by two things. By praise and by thanksgiving. Or by praise and gratitude, you could say. So this is now when we come to, as we're even thinking about this call to worship, we come to that real talk moment that I alluded to, kind of second piece of helping one another live godly lives. We have to be real that we do not always live lives characterized by praise and gratitude to God. I say that with confidence because I know that I don't do that and I'm looking at a room full of people that, like me, are natural-born grumblers. We murmur all the time. Grumbling is as easy for us as breathing. Now, it needs to be acknowledged, and even saying that, this is where that essential biblical truth of the internal war comes into this. Because for everyone in this room and everyone on the planet who has been born again by God's Spirit, we have been changed. 
We have a new identity. We are a new creature in Christ Jesus. And so now, in our spirit, we want to live lives that are characterized by praise and gratitude to God. In our spirit, we want to shout for joy to the Lord. In our spirit, we want to praise the Lord continually. We want to give thanks to Him always. We want to sing. We want to honor Him in all that we do. In our spirit, those things are true. If those things are not true, we need to have another conversation. But our hearts, because of indwelling sin and the war within, we know that our hearts are sometimes sluggish. Sin wages war against our spirit. And we don't do the things we want to do. And then we find ourselves doing the things that we don't want to do. And so, we grumble. We complain. We find it easier to get excited about things in the world than the things of God. We are overcome sometimes with despondency and despair. You understand, none of, the, none of those things come from the Spirit of God. None. Those things come from sin within you and me. We hope too much in our circumstances. More than we even realize. So when you find that what you had anticipated for your day doesn't pan out and you are warped out of your frame, that's an indication that you are hoping very much in your circumstance. I am guilty of that, just as you are. And hoping too much in our circumstances causes us to live in a steady state of frustration and disappointment. We find things that are wrong enticing. That, as clearly as anything, could never come from God. Ever. Comes from sin comes from hell. We seek and pursue our own comfort more than we do the kingdom of God and His righteousness. I could go on. This is who we are in Adam. Already, but not yet. We have been changed. We are being saved. We will finally be saved. And nobody is fully sanctified yet. Right? The battle and the struggle is real. Now, this has to be said. It is normal to struggle with the things that I just articulated. It's normal for those things to happen in your life. And it is not okay. That distinction is essential. It's normal and it's not okay. Right? Because if you remove either one of those prongs, we got a serious problem. Because if you act like sin isn't normal, then you must be talking about Christian perfection as though we can reach full sanctification and never sin. Not only is that not biblical, it, nobody can have any assurance, nobody can have any hope, because sin still remains in us as we live in these fallen bodies. So if you remove that piece that sin is normal, we got a problem. But if you ever remove the piece where sin is not okay, we've got a huge problem. Sin is never okay. If you were to say, in other words, that it's normal to sin and it's okay to sin, we have a problem. It's normal and it's not all right. The fact that it's normal produces realistic people, that produces honest people, that produces a charitable culture in a church, 
And then to say that it's not okay produces a culture in which we do genuinely strive for holiness and we strive after the Lord. Because sin is normal and because sin is not okay, we desperately need the grace of God. We needed the grace of God to be converted in the first place. Amen. And we need the grace of God every day in order to live a life pleasing to the Lord. If we're ever going to live lives characterized by praise and gratitude to God, it it will be through the Spirit of God, by the grace of God working in us. Back to that phrase. Praise befits the upright. Praise befits the saints. Why? Why? It's a good question to ask of the Bible every time you look at it. Why? Simply... As my heading might have already given away. Simply the answer to that question is because the Lord is worthy of praise. But let's look specifically at verses 4 and 5 here of this text. So verses 1 through 3 are a call to worship. Verses 4 and 5 essentially establish the theme of the rest of the song. The worthiness of God to be praised. Because of His word and because of His works. So here we go. Verse 4. The Lord is worthy of praise. Why? The first thing that could be said is because the word of the Lord is upright. The word of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. The word of the Lord is sure. You can trust it. It makes people wise. The word of the Lord is right. And it's never wrong. It brings joy to the heart. The word of the Lord is pure. It gives us eyes to see what is real and what's true. The word of the Lord is clean, untainted, and it lasts forever. The word of the Lord is true. It is never false. The word of the Lord is altogether righteous. Just like the Lord is upright and never sins, His word is upright. The word of the Lord is a lamp to our feet. It is our perfect an infallible guide for living. It shows us the way we should go. And it shows us where and how we need to grow. There's another reason though in verses 4 and 5. Why does praise befit the saints if the Lord's word is upright? That's reason one. Reason number two is because all of the Lord's work is done in faithfulness. All of the Lord's work is done in faithfulness. God is never unfaithful. Write it down. Never. By never, I mean never. So we sing a song occasionally here in church called When Trials Come. And in the last verse, the words go, One day all things will be made new. I'll see the hope you've called me to. And in your kingdom, paved with gold, I'll praise your faithfulness of old. We will look back one day in as much awareness as we'll have. I don't know. But any looking back we would ever do, we will look back and know that God was faithful every single moment we were breathing. He is never unfaithful. God has never let His people down. Ever. That is hard to fathom because we live in a world where we let one another down all the time. 
We disappoint one another all the time. We break promises all the time. What did Justin Timberlake say, right? People make promises all the time, then they turn right around and break them. That's pretty good theology. It's a doctrine of sin, right? It's what we do. God does not do that, ever. God has never not come through. Doesn't matter how much pressure. He's impervious to that. God, this is another one. God has never abused His authority. Smoke. We live in a world, excuse me, where the people that we are under their authority, they abuse it on the regular, right? How many in the room have been abused in all kinds of ways by people in authority over them? God has never done that. He has never, on the flip side of that equation, abdicated His authority. We deal with that problem too. Where authority is abdicated. I have authority to use in a good way, and I'm deuces, man, I'm out. It's too hard. God is never like that. He is always faithful. God is never zoned out. He's never dropped the ball. He's never fallen asleep on the job. He's never made a mistake, ever. He is always faithful. He is utterly reliable and trustworthy. There's still more in verses 4 and 5. Why does praise befit the saints? Verse 5, it's because the Lord loves righteousness and justice. The Lord, quite simply, only loves what is righteous and just. Period. He has never loved anything that is unrighteous. And He has never loved anything that is unjust, nor will He ever do that. Again, this is like a mind blow. Because we love impure, unrighteous, unjust things all the time. There's a part of us, yes, inside of us, in our consciences, in our hearts, where we cry out for justice, that's true. And we love unrighteous things. God has never done that. He only delights in what is upright and true. Not only does the Lord only delight and love those kinds of things, righteous things, just things, He only does righteousness and He only does justice. He is the Father of lights. There's no darkness in Him at all. And there is no shadow of turning due to change when it comes to Him. He cannot, this is another, He cannot be tempted. You ever thought about that? God Himself cannot be tempted because there is nothing in Him of which temptation or evil could take hold. He is that pure. He is that righteous. Again, will blow your mind and break your brain because there's stuff in us all over the place that temptation can grab and that wickedness and evil can latch onto. Not so with God. He loves righteousness. He loves justice. And He only practices those things. There's still more. Second piece of verse 5. Praise befits the saints. Why? Another reason is because the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. The Lord steadfastly loves the world that He has made. He sustains it. He upholds it by the word of His power. He is good toward His creation. He sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. He gives good gifts to the righteous and to the wicked. His common grace is just that. It's common. 
All creatures benefit from it. God loves the world. It's right to say. And there is more to say. God steadfastly loves the world. And even more so, in a more incredible and unique way, God steadfastly loves His people. Oftentimes when we talk about the love of God, we tend to flatten it. Like it's just one speed. It's not the case. Think about yourself. You're an emotionally complex being. You have different kinds of love. You can feel multiple ways about one thing. I mean, that that can happen. The love of God is incredibly deep and vast and complex in an awesome way. So it's true to say that he loves the world in its totality. And it's also true to say that he loves his people uniquely. God is steadfastly, unswervingly committed to his plan of redemption through which he will save his people. There is nothing that God is more committed to than that. We sang earlier about running our hellbound race, indifferent to the cost. And then I beheld God's love displayed, right? When I was led to the cross, I beheld God's love displayed how? In the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We most fundamentally and essentially see the steadfast love of God for His people. That God, in eternity past, determined to create the world and then from the world to redeem for Himself a people who would know Him and love Him and worship Him and enjoy Him forever. A people that He would adopt. A people that He would give His name to. A people who would know Him as He is. He would be their God. He determined to do this. He determined to do it purely motivated by His grace and His mercy and His love and His goodness. Not because of anything in the people. Not because they deserved it. But because He is a merciful and gracious God who shows steadfast love to thousands as we confessed earlier. (coughs) And by thousands we should understand multitudes. Like that multitude that no one can count in Revelation 7. You want to know about the steadfast love of God. Behold Jesus Christ in the Scripture. God the Son took on human flesh. Emptied Himself of everything but love. We're going to sing in just a moment. He set aside His glory, all of it in its totality, and by taking on human flesh, humbled Himself. He became a servant, obedient to death, even death on a cross. He lived a perfect life under the law. The God who gave the law took on flesh and came to live under the law in order that He might redeem us who were born under that same law. He fulfilled it perfectly at every level. Thought level, heart level, motivation level, deed level. He did it. He fulfilled all righteousness and it is counted to His people through faith. This is how, we'll think more about this in a moment, God can show steadfast love and can forgive iniquity and transgression and sin and by no means clear the guilty. Because Christ in our place lived the perfect life that God requires that none of us have lived. And in addition, 
there is a penalty that God's perfect law requires. He requires death. He requires judgment. Bearing His wrath, His anger, His righteous anger forever. That's the penalty for being a lawbreaker. And Jesus not only fulfilled the law in our place, He took the punishment that the law requires of us in our place. And through faith, this great exchange happens. He takes, Jesus, He takes our sin, pays that debt, bears that wrath, and we get His righteousness. Like we've said, it's the great exchange. It's the best deal in the world. Not by merit, but by blood we are saved. Jesus' wealth was put into the ground, as most in the room know. He was put in the ground after He was killed on a cross on a Friday afternoon. And his body was in the tomb on Friday night and all day Saturday. And then in the early hours of Sunday morning on the third day, he got up from the dead. He, in doing that, demonstrated that it was demonstrated, I should say, that his sacrifice was enough, that it was sufficient. God the Father was pleased. Jesus was vindicated in the sacrifice that he had made. And in getting up from the grave, he conquered in the place of his people forever death and Satan and sin. As we've thought about before many times here at CBC, it is the greatest thing in the world to be in Christ. The greatest thing in the world is to be in Christ. That you might be counted righteous, that your sin would be atoned for and paid for, and that in Jesus, you too will conquer death and sin and Satan and be with God in perfect fellowship forever. That's what it means to be in Christ. God is unswervingly and steadfastly committed to His plan of redemption accomplished through His Son. He is so committed to it that it is absolutely right and appropriate to say that the entire universe is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. And there will come a day when in consummation, the glory and the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And we will be with the Lord and we will see Jesus as He is. The Lord is worthy of praise. He is worthy of praise. And so praise befits His people. Praise befits the saints. As I've already said, verses 4 and 5 of this psalm establish the theme for the rest of it. The Lord is to be praised for His Word and the Lord is to be praised for His works. So the rest of our time together, we're going to continue to consider God's praiseworthiness. And we're going to do this under three headings, kind of exhibit A, B, and C. Okay? So God's praiseworthiness, exhibit A. God's power in creation. Exhibit A. God's power in creation. In creation. We're going to look at verses 6 through 9 together. Our consideration of these verses left will be briefer than the ones that have preceded. Put your eyes on verse 6. You see that by the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. So by God's word the heavens were made, and he breathed out, and the heavenly host, namely that's like the planets and the stars and stuff, that was all made by God as he spoke. He hung, to use the language of Isaiah, he hung the heavens like a curtain and spread them out like a tent to dwell in. 
How powerful is God? He hangs the heavens like we hang curtains. He put the stars in place and calls them each by name. He forgets none of them and none of them are missing. We don't even know how many stars there are. We keep finding more of them all the time. God put every one of them where they are. And He knows them each by name, His Word says. Verse 7, He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap and He puts the deeps in storehouses. So the Lord, no big deal, gathers the waters of the sea like a heap. Just puts them in a storehouse. No, no big thing. Not, to, not making light of this at all. Like if you've seen news coverage at all in the last like two, three years, you've seen the damage that water can do. Even in the continental United States. Think of a couple of the hurricanes that have hit. I mean, if you go back to 2005, between Katrina and then Irma and everything that happened in Houston. And then even recently, Florence on the East Coast. And then Michael down in Florida. I mean, there is just massive damage done by water. Tidal surges and all these kinds of things that are absolutely terrifying. We are powerless. With all of our technology and all of the advancements and developments of mankind, we are powerless to stop it. And God controls it with ease. Ease. He does what He wants with the seas and all deeps, Psalm 135. He tells the oceans, this far you shall come and no further, Job 38. Verse 8. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. All the earth should fear and revere the Lord for His power. All the people of the earth should stand in awe of Him. That's the right response. But sadly, it's not the typical one. Even in the church, we can be so inoculated to the talk of God's power in creation that we cease to be amazed by it. May that never be so. His power is astonishing. May God enable us to grasp His power and then cause us to stand, as the text says, in awe of Him. Verse 9, For He spoke, and it came to be, he commanded, and it stood firm. I don't know that those words need a lot of unpacking from me. The Lord said it, and it happened. Period. The Lord says it, it happens. Period. No exceptions. He commanded it, and it stood firm. What the Lord commands and what the Lord decrees happen. It happens. No exceptions. Let's now move to consider Exhibit B. If Exhibit A was God's power and creation in terms of His praiseworthiness, Exhibit B is God's sovereignty and purposefulness over the nations. I'll say that again. God's sovereignty and purposefulness. That's a word. It's one of the best words to use about God. Purposefulness over the nations. We'll be looking at verses 10 to 12 for just a moment. Put your eyes on verse 10. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever and the plans of his heart to all generations. This sounds a lot like Psalm 2, where we read that the nations rage and plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and his anointed. The rulers take counsel together for the same purpose, to set themselves free from the Lord's authority. But the Lord is not threatened by this. Sometimes this would help us as we think about geopolitical realities. It's understandable that we should care about those things. We certainly should. And there's a time and a place to have a great conversation about civic duty as a Christian. But this is a different time. We would do good to remember this reality. 
that the raging and the plotting of the nations does not frighten or bother the Lord at all. We read in Psalm 2 and verse 4 that the Lord laughs at the derision of the nations. This is because He brings the counsel of the nations to nothing, as you see in verse 10. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. Also in verse 10, Isaiah 40, He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. That's not meaning that rulers in the world don't serve a function. That's not meaning that it's not important to be a king or a president or a prime minister or a senator or whatever. It just means it's a relative thing. That power, that influence is a relative power. The Lord is the sovereign. There's more. The counsel and plans of the Lord, verse 11, on the other hand, they stand forever. So God is sovereign over all the plans, all the raging, all the plotting of the nations. He thwarts them as He needs to, as He wants to. But His counsel stands forever and the plans of His heart to all generations. So He accomplishes every one of His purposes with respect to rulers and nations. It matters not which nation. It matters not which ruler. It doesn't even matter whether that ruler or a single person in said nation even believes the Lord exists. It does not matter. Turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 45. We're going to do this. This this will be great. Isaiah 45. I believe Ryan has got the verses on the screen for us. Great. So if you can't find them in your Bible in a timely manner, you can look up here. We're going to look at verses 1 to 7 of Isaiah 45. I'm just going to read them and maybe briefly comment. This is about about Cyrus of Persia. So if you guys are familiar with history, you'll know some of the great empires that are even cataloged in Scripture. Beginning, obviously, with Egypt. But then Assyria is particularly instrumental, conquering the northern kingdom of Israel. Then the Babylonians end up conquering the Assyrians and also the southern kingdom of Judah. But then God also brings judgment on the Babylonians in the form of the Persians. And so we're talking about Cyrus the Great of Persia, arguably the most powerful man in the world when he was alive. Okay, here we go. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. Anointed just means chosen in this case. To Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped. To subdue nations before him and to loose the belt of kings. To open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob, that's meaning Israel in general there now, and Israel my chosen, obviously, there we go. I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. It's important. Cyrus does not know the Lord. It does not matter. God does everything he wants with the life of Cyrus the Great. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Boom. You want to talk about a mic drop? There it is. Flip over maybe a page. I don't even know how many. Isaiah chapter 46 in your Bibles. Isaiah 46. And we're going to look at verses 8 through 11 just very briefly. 
Again, thinking about God's sovereignty and his purposefulness over the nations. His power is astonishing. Isaiah 46, 8. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. He keeps saying that. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, that's Persia. The man of my counsel from a far country, that's Cyrus. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Again, if I had another microphone, we'd drop that one. These are massive words. Massive words. God's power and sovereignty over the nations and over the peoples of the world is incredible. He accomplishes everything that he wants to. He is never thwarted. Verse 12, back to Psalm 33. I should probably make that clear because we were just in Isaiah 46, 11. Psalm 33 and verse 12, as we thought about how God works with respect to the nations, The psalmist declares, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The psalmist is essentially saying if God works this intentionally with nations who don't know him or with nations that don't acknowledge him, how much more so will he work to accomplish his good purposes amongst his chosen people? In this context, it needs to be said, and I don't have time to unpack this. You can ask me questions at the door. In this context, the psalmist is clearly talking about Israel. We ought not to apply this to the United States. I'll just leave it there. Exhibit C. Exhibit C. So if we've had Exhibit A in God's praiseworthiness, His power and creation. Exhibit B, God's sovereignty and purposefulness over the nations. Exhibit C, God's sovereignty and purposefulness in the lives of individuals. God's sovereignty and purposefulness in the lives of individuals. We'll be looking at verses 13 through 19. So we're now zooming in from a national kind of global level to the individual level. Verse 13, the Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of mankind. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all. And observes all their deeds. So friends, quite clear. The Lord is all-knowing. He sees all things. Nothing can be hidden from Him. He sees all people. More than that, not only does He see all things and see all people, He sees all things and all people as they really are. This is not just some like external vision. This is like the x-ray vision of the greatest kind. He sees through to the heart, the mind, the spirit. He knows what's up, in other words. It is the Lord who not only observes all our deeds, but you see in verse 15, He fashions the hearts of them all. He fashions the hearts of every human being. He is personally involved in the life of every person. He is personally involved in fashioning the heart of every single person. And therefore, He accomplishes His purposes in every single person, without exception. The Lord is not thwarted ever. I'm going to make a strong statement that I'm confident is biblically correct or else I wouldn't be saying it. 
There is not one verse of Scripture that teaches that human beings can thwart the purposes of God. There is not a single verse of Scripture that teaches that human beings can thwart the purposes of God. If you find some verses that trouble you with respect to that, I'd love to open the Bible and talk about it. He is never thwarted in his purposefulness, in his plans. He accomplishes them all. All of the things that happen in the world that are bad, all of the things that happen in the world that even God in some ways laments are a part of his good and perfect plan. He has ordained them all. Again, we'll break your brain to try to understand all those things perfectly. And we trust the word of God and we trust the Lord in his character ultimately. We've already considered how the Lord operated in the life of Cyrus of Persia, one of the most powerful men in the history of the world. Consider this as well. Proverbs 21.1 says this. The king's heart, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. If the Lord turned the heart of Cyrus wherever he will, if the Lord turned the hearts of the kings wherever he will, does he not do the same with your heart? Does he not do the same with mine? Does he not do the same with the hearts of every single person we know? He does. Put your eyes on verse 16. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. In light of God's sovereignty and purposefulness, he is the only rescuer and the only savior. That only makes sense. To hope in anything or anyone else is foolish. Absolutely foolish. The king isn't saved by his army. A warrior isn't delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. Plain enough. If the king is going to be saved, if a warrior is going to be delivered, it will happen because God has ultimately done that. He works through means, yes. And God is decisive in everything that happens in the lives of every single person. Put your eyes on verse 18 now. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. We've already considered how the Lord sees every person. But now we're going to consider a subset of humanity. We see here in verses 18 and 19 that the Lord has his eye in a special way on those who fear him and on those who hope in him, in his steadfast love. For those people, the Lord is their deliverer, their savior. He's their protector. The Lord is especially watchful over those people who hope in him. Over those people who fear him, he takes special care of them. Friends, I don't know about you. But this is, a, this is a sweet word and a sweet promise. Because it is so easy, especially when we go through suffering, it is so easy to feel alone. It's easy to feel as though I'm the only person on the planet, maybe. And even when I'm around other people, we feel so isolated sometimes in suffering. Like nobody can fully understand. Nobody's able to kind of climb in here. And, and help me bear this as much as they may be trying to do that. This is a sweet promise that God 
not only is he aware, but he, he sees it, he knows it, he understands it, and he's working to deliver and protect his people in all things. Notice again what the text says, though. Notice what it says about these people of whom the Lord takes special care. It says that they fear him and that they hope in his steadfast love. Now, that makes sense, right? That the Lord would take special care of those people who do those things, who fear him and who hope in him. Question. How did those people come to fear God? How did those people come to hope? In his steadfast love. If, if God fashions the heart of everybody and if God sees everything and all the rest and he loves the whole world, but then he loves these people in a special way and he loves them because they fear him and he loves them because they hope in him. How did that happen for them? The answer is found in this context in verse 15. And the answer may be offensive to some is simply this. How did those people come to fear God and hope in his steadfast love? It's because God made them that way. It's because God worked that in their hearts. God fashioned it in their hearts. He fashions the hearts of all men. And he fashions the hearts of his people in such a way that we would see what's true. That we would know what's true and love what's true. That we would turn from our sin and our notions of our own goodness. And that we would believe Him. God works that into the hearts of His children. This is the great puzzle and perplexing question that we all have to answer and wrestle with somehow. Two people sitting on the same row, hearing the same sermon, whatever. And one of them is like cut to the heart bawling his or her eyes out like, I don't know anything right now, but I know I need Christ. And the other person's just like, yeah, I ain't feeling it, bro. How do you explain that? Other than to say that it is the Lord who by his spirit fashions the hearts of all men. And what I hope your takeaway is from that is hard and perplexing as some of that is, I hope the takeaway is like, God, thank you. Thank you that you have made my heart this way. Thank you that you have given me eyes to see you. Thank you that you have given me a heart that fears you and a heart that hopes in you and not in something else. I didn't make myself that way. I didn't produce those things in me. God, you must have done it. And I give you praise and thanks for that. Salvation, brothers and sisters, is of the Lord. From beginning to end, it is His work. Do we make decisions? Absolutely. Do we choose to follow Jesus? You better believe it. You will be choosing to follow Christ every day for the rest of your life. And then the real question underneath that question is why do we choose what we choose? That song, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus, is a wonderful song. It's a good song. And again, the question is not, have you made the decision? The question is, why did you make the decision you made? When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and by the way, you don't get deader than dead. Dead means dead. Dead means that like dead, dead people don't open their own caskets. Dead people don't raise themselves. It's just like with Lazarus in the tomb. It's the greatest example in Scripture. 
When Jesus comes to the tomb, you guys know the story. John chapter 11, the tomb's sealed up because like it's smelling bad. He's been dead for days. And Jesus says, Lazarus, live. Get up. The one who gave the command, live, had to give the life as well. Dead Lazarus couldn't do anything. He can't respond in and of himself in his deadness. He had to be given life from Christ with which to respond. It's because when God speaks, dead people obey. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive together in Christ because of the great love with which he loved us. Notice who the decisive actor is. Did you choose Jesus? Yes. Did you turn from your sin and trust Christ? Yes. And God made you alive together in Christ Jesus. Praise be to his name. God made us his. He overcame our rebellion. He conquered in that sense our rebellion and our sin and made us his own. God can do that, you know. He can overcome your resistance to him at any point at which he chooses. And if you sit here this morning in Christ, praise him that he has overcome your resistance to him. He has wooed you and brought you to himself. God has adopted us as his children, and so he watches over us now as a father. He sustains us and provides for us and delivers us. That's the posture he has towards his own, toward those who fear him and toward those who hope in his steadfast love. So, friends, as we land the plane, what's the conclusion? What's the conclusion? Let's look at verse 20. The psalmist writes, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. The psalmist concludes by saying that our soul waits on the Lord because he's our help and our shield. Our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. We hope in him. And pray that his steadfast love would be upon us. I love the corporate language of these verses. If you notice so many of the the Psalms and so many of the the texts in Scripture have such a corporate nature to them. You were saved from God's wrath to God's people, right? It's now we, it's now us, it's not just you. The Lord is worthy of praise. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Read Ephesians 1 this afternoon. Those blessings, see, here's the thing. Like when we talk about motivation for godly living, that's where I started, right? We're to stir one another up to love good works. We're to help one another live godly lives. Well, okay, how do we do that? How do we motivate one another? Well, the classic analogies, right, that are often made, you can motivate with a stick, like crack the whip, like get going, get it in gear. You can also motivate with a carrot, right? You can kind of tug that thing out there and it's like, hey, chase after it and then you'll get it. So what I'm not advocating for is the whole carrot approach. I'm certainly not saying motivate with a stick. But I'm also not saying motivate with a carrot because that analogy falls apart when it comes to the Christian life. Why? Because every good thing that you could ever have, you already have. You're not chasing it. You're not chasing the blessings to obtain them. They're already yours. You've been blessed in Christ Jesus with every blessing in the heavenly places already. Like we've talked about so many times, assurance, 
Knowing that God is good with me and that I'm good with him. That is the essence and the lifeblood of the Christian life, not the goal, not the pursuit. It's important that we keep these things in view, even in thinking about how to motivate one another to holy living. And I'm not going to go into the the various times and places where some of that warning and harsh language is required. I've said that more than enough lately. But just in a general way, we motivate one another with this. Look, you've been blessed with everything that you need already. It's yours in Christ Jesus. You have been raised to walk in newness of life. God is awesome. He's loving. He's merciful. He's gracious. He saved you. He saved me. He provides for us. He delivers us. He will save us. We're going to get him forever. Let's live for him. That's how this goes. We've been adopted into his family. We've been predestined to be a part of his people. We've been chosen by him in Christ. We've been in Jesus, redeemed, forgiven, counted righteous, and guaranteed an inheritance that's called the kingdom of God. And it's yours now. Live accordingly. Those aren't things, in other words, those will be crystal clear. Those are not things, all those blessings that we work for. They are blessings that we work from. It's not that we don't work. It's not like, okay, you're good in Jesus. Kick your heels up. Keep sinning. No. You are good with God in Christ. You could never earn it. He gave you a gift that is without possibility of ever being paid for. And now work for Him. We live out of these blessings. Let's love Him with all our hearts. Stir one another up, right? Encourage each other. Let's go. Lock arms. Let's love Him with all our hearts. Let's do good works for His glory that even unbelieving people might see our good works and give glory to our Father who's in heaven. Let's love one another so that the world might know that we belong to Jesus. That's what Christ said. The world's going to know you belong to me by how you love each other. Let's love each other. Let's make Jesus look awesome, right? That's the motivation. Let's flee from temptation. Sin dishonors God and it destroys your life. Why would you ever want to do it? The only reason is because it's this thing in you that wages war against you, which we've considered enough. But flee from temptation. Let's battle sin. You're not battling sin so that you might be saved. You're battling sin for God's honor and your good. Knowing that Christ has paid for every single family. Let's walk together. Right? In the light as our God is in the light. And may the steadfast love of the Lord be upon us, right? Even as we hope in Him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do pray that you would teach us from your word what's true and right, that you would even help us to think well and then live well with respect to how we would ever live a life that honors you with respect to the reasons we would live a life that honors you, with respect to the things that make it possible, we pray that we would see these things clearly and that we would never see a contradiction because there isn't one. That we are saved completely by Jesus and what he's accomplished for us and then we are set free unto righteousness and good works. We pray that we would know that. We pray, God, that you would fashion our hearts, that you would make our hearts more and more like your own. We pray that you would cause us to live lives that are characterized 
constantly and continuously by praise and gratitude to you. And as we've acknowledged, we're powerless to do that for ourselves. And so we trust you. We hope in you, our God who is faithful and who abounds in steadfast love. Bless us. Change us, we pray. Get glory for yourself through us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, we've come now to the time of our...